forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported solely by its listeners. So if you would like to become a supporter, go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. And for $5 a month, you can get access to bonus episodes. There's a tote bag. It's the, it's the podcast world in which we live. You know how it works. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. And thank you to all of my supporters. It's really appreciated. There is always a myth about a city that may or may not line up with the reality of what it is like to live in that city. One dreams of New York not because they want to live in a city that is now mostly an endless collection of bank storefronts and drugstores, but because they want to prove themselves and to succeed. One dreams of creating art and love in Paris, not living in a space with serious racial and class segregation. Then there is the myth of Berlin. According to this myth, Berlin is incredibly cheap. It has endless resources that can be dipped into by an ever-growing population of expats and exiles, and everyone there is creative. The myth not only doesn't really line up with reality, Berlin has the fastest growing property rates in the world, and locals are being pushed out by rising rents and housing shortages. The myth is actively helping to destroy what is and was unique about the city. But one myth about Berlin that it does live up to is that it offers a temporary home to the rootless and the restless. Berlin seems to collect the weirdos who can't just pick a place and live there, who can't deal with families or property or stability. So I wanted to talk to Cece O'Hanlon, an Australian living in Berlin, but about to leave Berlin, about the myth of the city what it promises, and what it actually offers. So yeah, I I wanted to talk uh, to somebody who had a sort of similar situation as mine, um, as far as being a foreigner in Berlin for about the same amount of time, really five years is about how long I was here and the decision to leave because from the outside, like people treat Berlin, like it's this absolute paradise of free rent and uh, drugs and sex and, you know, partying all the time. Um, But which that's not necessary. That was definitely not my experience of Berlin. And I think it's very different. Um, So I wanted to talk about, uh, well, what brought you here and now why why it is that you're going? Yeah, I had never really considered Berlin uh, as a place I wanted to go in the first place. It certainly wasn't on any kind of atlas of desire that I had. Uh, we were living quite happily in southwest France, um, uh, enjoying the climate, enjoying everything to do with rural life in France, and, and perhaps because of age, I wasn't particularly... Uh, missing being in a big city, in a busy city. Um, so we ended up coming here because uh, a Ukrainian uh, oligarch essentially bought a uh, a piece of the then failing Polaroid empire. Uh, uh, there was a company called Impossible, which had bought the last factory manufacturing instant film anywhere in the world. They ran into some trouble. He invested uh, quite significantly, 
and originally had asked me to come up and advise and marketing and, and communications and so on. Uh, but within about 48 hours, it turned into an offer to me to actually head the company. So what was originally envisaged as uh, an interlude away from our paradise in, in, in southwest France turned into first a year, then two and a half years. Uh, and by that point, we found ourselves not only embedded in Berlin, but also beginning to understand the city a bit better than we had at a distance and enjoying it. Uh, you know, there's a lot to enjoy in Berlin. Uh, some of the cliches about it, uh, certainly the sense of freedom, tolerance, and so on, was very, very true five years ago. I, I think it's declined a little bit, but it was an appealing place to be. Um, our, fir our first experience of a police action in our street was was there were a bunch of uh, um, sort of feral type people wandering down the street, homeless, pushing a couple of carts full of dogs and clothes. And they were obviously stoned out of their minds. And a police car pulled up and I'm sitting on my terrace watching this happen. And um, rather than being in any way uh, aggressive or, or um, strict, uh, he asked them to try and walk on the pavement, don't stray in front of the traffic, no, you're stoned and everything. And what it ended up was these two cops parked their car and just walked them to a quiet street. And once they knew they were on a quiet street out of the traffic and there wasn't a danger to themselves or anyone else, they went back to their car and left them alone. Now, they could have easily shaken them down, pushed them up against the wall, and they're sure to have found plenty to at least hold them for a few days. They weren't interested, and they were very respectful. They were almost humorous about it. Um, and I thought, yeah, a city that's like that, especially after experiences we'd had not only in the U.S., but also in Australia, where the police can be very aggressive and very authoritarian and uh, almost dangerously so. I mean, a jaywalking offense in L.A. for me almost turned into a, a shooting thing. You know, you sort of think, well, how did that happen? Um, so... Yeah. Yeah, the quality of life thing is not is not um a mistake. Um as far as uh you know, even being able to walk down the street at night in Berlin as a woman by myself, I never felt under threat of any kind. I never felt like I was at, in danger of being jumped or, or mugged or anything like that. Um, not that it doesn't happen, but, you know, sexual violence rates are way low in Berlin compared to everywhere else in the world. And, you know, I don't walk in my own neighborhood in Kansas City where I live now after dark just because that would be absolute insanity. Um, so that stuff has, has a real effect on, I think, how you behave in a city where you just feel kind of safe to be a person and you're not always sort of looking over your shoulder and having to be cagey. It, it really affects um, how you feel in your environment, how you can operate, I think. Yeah, I, it's unquestionably the, the case. Um, I think there is a, a, a deliberate uh, policy among sort of Berlin burgers to, to not outlaw things that are, are going to repress society unnecessarily. I mean, you, you not only have very free range policies in, in, in clubs like Bergheim, where in fact the police come up and ask if they can walk through the club and the club simply says no. Uh, and the police accept that. 
Um, they say, look, you're welcome to come in as non-policemen. You can have a drink, happy to do that, but you can't come in and walk around with a crowd. Equally, we have even in this neighborhood, you know, open brothels and, and so on uh, with no particular stigma attached to it. So there is a uh, there is a, a a wonderful lack of repression and 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 reprobation in the city. You, people don't tell people off for being what they are, um, and, and that does something to the place. Uh, as well as that, there's a genuine interest in a lot of the unusual things that go on, whether it's music, events, poetry. There is great participation. There's a wonderful improvised nature to it. We've got a, a concert hall here in Vedding, which is an old piano factory. Oh, yeah. I've been there many times. Exactly. I'm going there tomorrow it, night. I have tickets for tomorrow night, actually. It's wonderful, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you, you ask for a seat, they give it to you, and providing you turn up, you, you, you get it, and mm -hmm. uh, you can't contribute what you feel the, the performance was worth. And, and the wine is like a euro for a glass, <laughs> and you can just have it if you don't have a euro. They just give it to you. Well, the lovely thing is that in Berlin, you can go into a supermarket and buy a very superior yeah. candy for six euros. So, yeah. you know, yeah. everything on that basis is, is good. Yeah. So, I, th I think that just all contributes to the, the, the wonderful things of Berlin. And there is also this connection to the, 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 the Weimar period where something similar was going on back then. And we all kind of relate to it. Unfortunately, there's, there's also now rather, Sinister, sinister uh, feelings that we may be actually in another Weimar period and it's all going to turn really bad really fast really soon. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, the cultural exchanges and even the exchanges between the arts and science and, and, and other areas of the, the broader culture, that is happening here in a way that it isn't happening in, in even New York or London, I think. Yeah. And I was thinking about this, about how another city could become Berlin or have the same sort of uh, feel to it because it's not just a bunch of creative people in a space. It does have to have this kind of mutual respect between state and, and citizenry where, you know, um, Kansas City has great um, artists, great music. It's cheap as shit, uh, but it doesn't, create the same environment because it has a violent authoritarian police state. Um, it has, uh, you know, all the things that sort of Berlin uh, just sort of allows to happen, Kansas City tries to control. And it has this effect of just um, people leave all the time because it's too frustrating to, to get anything done there. The funny thing is, I suspect that this is actually the true of even centers like New York, there is this definite division between the creators of the culture, the stuff that we all find interesting, whether it's in literature, uh, art, film, whatever. Uh, it all exists there. But then there is this very definite divide with the rich of the city, the political power of the city, the police power of the city. It's There are all these separate silos, and they don't really – interact and they certainly don't care very much for each other they see them as inconveniences necessary evils whatever um whereas in berlin there is a sense that it still i think it's declining but there is still the, the sense of everyone being involved in this one berlin experience um 
and there isn't this great divide between the authorities, even the police. There's an enormous sympathy. I, I find even when you watch the police in a, a public space, you go up to Mauer Park on a Sunday, and you know, clearly there's all sorts of things going on, and they are not interested in suppressing it. They just want to make sure that it doesn't get out of control or it's not being abusive or the drugs that they're selling is, are not very hard drugs and they're not selling them to kids and that the kids are not getting too stoned. And so there's a, this sensitive management of public order, but it's not intrusive and it's certainly, as I said, not suppressive in any way. And I think that's Berlin's beauty. If you spend any time in any city in America, almost especially New York these days, uh, that's certainly not the case. Yeah, Berlin just wants you to get all your paperwork done. Like as long as you get, the, as long as you file the paperwork on time, like you can do whatever the fuck you want. It really, it's really, really important though that you get your paperwork in on time. Um, yeah. But my favorite, my favorite memory of watching the police interact um, with uh, the people around them was this. It was like a, it's kind of traffic jam and the police were trying to get through in their car and they were like on the horn, like move over, move over. And then the person did and they said, thank you. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> I liked it so much. Well, we, we, we saw the thing actually here the other day where a bunch of older Turkish men were busted on what looked like a very severe arms dealing charge. Oh, okay. And there was six or seven of them handcuffs leaning by the police cars and literally bags full of quite serious weapons piled Jesus. up on the front of the car. I should point out that in my neighborhood, when they celebrate New Year's, they do fire off things like AK-47s into the sky rather than just messing around with little firecrackers. Yeah. But this was something serious. But nevertheless, even then, there wasn't this kind of ominous police authoritarian thing. They had the guys. The guys knew they were got dead to rights. Mm -hmm. They were reading them the rights, inventorying the weapons they had. But there was actually guys cracking jokes between, you know, the, the suspects and the police. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like good humor. I mean, possibly these guys figured that as soon as they break bail, they're going to be out of the city and, you know, this doesn't matter. But nevertheless, this in another city, if they had, you know, half a dozen guys and they just found 40, 50, you know, high powered rifles and submachine guns in their living room, it might, might be something different, especially given yeah. that they're Muslims. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They would be, they, one of them at least would be dead. Um, yeah. It's, uh, you know, and I think also one of the other reasons that, it's so hard to recreate Berlin somewhere else is, or at least particularly in the United States, um, is this very sort of uh, idiotic, um, sort of Richard Florida way of looking at creativity. So it's the, it's not artists, it's the creative class, right? And so you're thinking about how, how can artists benefit the, uh, the local economy which they can't, basically. I mean, artists are ne'er-do-wells and, and shitheads. Like, they're bad at capitalism. But, you know, graphic designers and web designers and app designers who now can sort of call themselves the creative class or creative, um, they're good for the economy. But I think that that has really infected the sort of American idea of what creativity or art, or art is, is somebody who's going to make something that can sell. 
Yeah, I, I this is almost an, a whole other subject, but I I think that one of the mistakes that artists, writers, filmmakers, and so on made was that they, especially in the eighties during the first big art boom in New York and and through the nineties, uh, there was this to me incomprehensible desire to use language and portray themselves as part of some product producing class. Yeah. There was suddenly this, even small subtle things, you know, this talk of an artist's practice, the the conversations around productizing art mm -hmm. and the production line of art. All of this contributed to the notion that not only were they trying to belong to something that they could never really belong to economically, but also that they were somehow part of the productive whole of, of capitalist America or capitalist anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think it was an enormous mistake because they sort of, some of them halfway managed it. They certainly, the, the elite managed massive incomes that were inconceivable in previous ages. Um, and I, I also think that the, 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 art world language became so indecipherable that it was it, it separated itself out completely it, so that so that the average artist was trying to practice something that wasn't really the artistic life he could never be accommodated in the society as a whole and it also gave a society the 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 ability, especially in America, to say, see, they don't really need our help. If they do what we we want them to do in terms of, you know, properly managing themselves, they right. don't need grants, they don't need yeah. which is a nonsense. Of course it does. Yeah. And so I think that to some extent we conspired with uh, the trends of the day to completely undermine the possibility of the future of art being uh, a really vibrant piece of the American landscape. Now it's it's either a, a war zone, or as you've rightly pointed out, it's not actually art. Yeah, it, it's it's these businesses that have been able to give themselves the aura of it without actually being in the in the thick of creative activity. Yeah, and it's very much similar in the writing community in America, which is. Um, so hell-bent on professionalizing themselves through MFA programs, through, uh, you know, the, the, the day job writer is, is dead and gone in America. Nobody waitresses, nobody bartends. They want to make their living wholly and fully through writing um, or teaching writing. Um, and that's the only legitimate form of writing anymore. That's the only way to be a writer now. Um, and it does something to you when, when you're, you're thinking of your work as a product that needs to sell, like it does something to you and it doesn't allow you to create great writing. It allows you to create product. Um, and, you know, part of the reason, one of the reasons why I left Berlin three years ago was just, it was a little bit, heartbreaking to see that mentality start to take over the art world and the writing world here um, of these fucking Americans coming over uh, with their expectations and trying to um, behave that way in America uh, that they did in America here in Berlin and misunderstanding what Berlin was about. 
Yeah, and, and it, it's pro possibly a double shame because a lot of the early escapees here were those Americans who recognized what was happening and trying absolutely to get somewhere else and do, do it differently. Yeah. And there was here definitely the opportunities to do it differently. Again, disappearing rapidly, but even five years ago, there you could set up art spaces, studios, and, and so on, and, and and do quite well. Yeah. Um, but I, I think too, this is the publishing business itself uh, moved away from really being involved in literature and moving into highly commercial product. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, in some cases, nine-figure advances to the writers who could deliver King or or or, or Harry Potter-like scale. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even the notion that publishers began thinking in terms of scale was interesting. Um, but the tragedy is so many followed along with it. Mm -hmm. um, and even the way we, we rank it, you know, apart from talking about emerging writers, we're now talking about middle rank writers. And what we're really talking about is middle rank writers economically. Right. Yeah. It's not about the quality of the work or, 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 or anything else. It's just where you sit in this, this pecking order, which is defined financially, I think. I, I also think that increasingly the, the publishing world is inhabited by people who don't actually read um, and are not particularly fond of conversations with writers. And I think that's especially so, so of agents in America. Um, yeah. and, and I think <laughs> yeah. London too now. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I speak to some friends of mine who are successful young writers and the the amount of conversations they have with their agents uh, compared to, say, in my father's day, when agents were almost part of the family, as were publishers. Uh, I mean, uh, this is certainly not the case now. There's this divide. And again, I, I think this, is, this goes back to the things we're saying, that in nearly every aspect of American culture now, you have these very solid divides, and they're, they've made it totally non-porous. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's going to happen here. I think inevitably it's happening in all so many places. Uh, and it, I, I don't really know what happens next. I think publishing particularly is in its death throes. I think that what we all thought of as publishing 10 years ago is going to be nothing like it in another 10 years. Yeah, including independent publishing, which yeah. was supposed to save it. it. It That fell into the exact same trap of um, of chasing money and trying to build brands rather than uh, build writers up. And it is interesting that Berlin produced so little good literature of the last 15 years. It doesn't mean like there wasn't you know, Helen DeWitt was here. She's brilliant. Uh, 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 we have, uh, how many, uh, Nobel Prize winners who currently live here from Mueller to, uh, Kirtash was here b until he died. Um, and, uh, so that was fine, but it also just had like all of these sort of like fucking writers who wanted to tell Berlin's story and they told it so bad. I, I was asked to review so many books of novels about Berlin, about young people in Berlin, and they were 
They were atrocious. They were crimes against humanity. It was really, really something. Oh, and then Wetlands, the Charlotte, uh, what's her name? Charlotte Roche book. That was the only other good Berlin book was uh, that thing that caused such a, a absolute scandal when it was published. Um, that was the only other good Berlin book. Yeah. I, that's, I, again, I think a lot of that can be said of nearly every aspect of the arts. I mean, most of the great German painters don't even live in Germany. Yeah, uh, I can only think of one, Jonathan Mesa, who's who's got a, a global reputation. He sees himself very specifically as a Berlin artist, uh, but most of the Berlin art that you see, indeed, a lot of the Berlin music is not particularly interesting, mm-hmm. or it's being produced in Berlin by by foreigners who are, who are here because of the lifestyle and so on, but. Uh, you don't get the the sense when I was in New York in the eighties. You really sort of felt this energy of the city at every level. There were all the the hip young novelists coming up. There was the art scene, the music scene, the classical music scene, the jazz scene. It was it was all bursting. And then you had you know people like Jim Jarmusch and the downtown filmmakers and so on. Mm-hmm. And somehow it was all fitting together. The early days of of uh, of uh, of rap and so on was also happening downtown the the performance art scene and somehow it was in this bubbling vat of stuff that was simultaneous and sometimes confounding but you definitely sensed not just the the totality of it but also all the individual parts of it collaborating Mm -hmm. everybody knew each other everybody was involved in other things there was places where you could you don't join if you came from out of town and you thought you could hold your own then you know there was places again berlin isn't like that yeah but every i think everybody who doesn't live in berlin thinks that it is like that and yeah, i think no. that like 50 percent of the population of berlin also thinks that it's like that but but it doesn't yeah i think the only place where there's probably something similar to that is in the the electronic dance music scene definitely there's some sort of communal thing that Partly th- because of age, I, I, I can't speak about it. But you see it, you sense it, you 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 hear the conversations, you see the interactions. Mm-hmm. Possibly also with film, there's there's enough of a mixture of new young talent and established people like Vim Vendors living here, mm-hmm. who still work very independently and certainly independently of hor- Hollywood. Uh, or horrorwood. Uh, <laughs> Either uh, one is correct. Yes. Yeah. So you know, uh, there are patches of it, but as a unified whole, no. Yeah. Um, why is that? Do you think? <sighs> I, I I think part of it is that in the the unquestionable freedoms that the place gives in terms of spaces and opportunities and and the mixing of people, it. On one level, it, it kind of lacks this ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't this driving desire to to you know achieve the great German novel or the the even the great international novel in Germany. It's just like everyone's kind of doing stuff in that. Oh, by the way, I'm doing this book on the side, yeah. so there isn't this kind of uh, drive, uh, and it's easy to get distracted, even if you have that drive. That you can get kind of just have an interesting lifestyle and, and do interesting stuff without actually too much accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, 
the, it's interesting that in, 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 in Berlin that you can go and register your occupation in translation as a life artist. Mm. Uh, it's a category of work of someone who is creative in outlook but not necessarily output. Yeah. You know, uh, and the fact that they even have this category almost encourages it as as a more desirable state of mind for Berlin than the people who are who are sitting there, you know, toiling away in their atelier. Yeah, because it does attract a certain type of uh, rootless person um, in the way that I think Paris did, you know, between yes. the wars. It just sort of occupies the space of like, yeah, you can just come hang out here. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, you don't have to stay. We understand if you're going to leave. Um, so it does, you know, um, uh, and that's, I think, what I loved about it was that everybody had this state of like, displacement um and so they understand your displacement whereas um in the united states well you know I'll, I'll stop talking about kansas city in a minute but it's i'm seen as being crazy because i'm you know i'm 39 and i'm not married and uh i don't have any money and uh my career is kind of weird and so there's this thing of like if you're in berlin like this is exactly the type of person who's supposed to live in berlin is me and i'm not supposed to live in kansas city where i live <laughs> yeah the interesting thing for me is that i think that that's it's more interesting to be an outsider in some place like kansas city than to actually live in an in, in a city that sees itself as as a is populated by outsiders and in fact so many of the people that i meet who see themselves as outsiders are actually extremely conventional. Oh, extremely conventional. So conventional. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I understand your experience. I mean, I lived for a while with my wife in, in her hometown of Tulsa. Mm -hmm. And, and Tulsa is somewhat similar. There, there are actually quite interesting things going there. They're not really part of the city, mm -hmm, and the city right. doesn't really embrace them at all. But there are unquestionably interesting things going on there. Um, and when I'm there, I uh, I feel utterly as an outsider, even if I, I wasn't involved in the arts at all. Uh, even just things where people say, you talk funny. You know, it's like, I talk funny. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. uh, or yeah. if you ask for identification, you show them a passport and they go, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you've made some terrible error, you know. Yeah. Uh, so – I don't know. I, 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 one of the reasons I'm looking forward to getting out of Berlin and getting back to the States is because I, I actually want that impulse to sort of sit there on the outside of things and do things. Uh, I actually have very little interest in, in being in some place like Brooklyn. Oh, fuck or, Brooklyn, or, yeah. or, you know, Culver City or somewhere like that on the West Coast. I, I, I really have no interest in that. I, I, I rather like being in one of the flyover states doing my thing. Yeah, I do too. But I feel like if I stay there, I'm going to drink myself to death. Like, I really think, I really see well, my Well, either that or they're going to scoop you up when they start disappearing the people like oh. you. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't think I haven't thought about that. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I did go back and forth for a long time because I love Berlin. But one of the reasons I left was was kind of the same thing because it's hard to create um, a sense of uh, stability when everybody around you is 
is unstable in that in the same way that you are, right? Like sometimes it's nice to be the unstable one in a stable place um, because you can just kind of do whatever. But if everybody else is unstable too and sort of moving in and out and it's hard to form sort of lasting friendships and that sort of stuff, it's really hard to get like a life together. But I also think it's it, it's something even more basic that that cliche of the pearl being formed by abrasion where the film uh, the pearl is a reaction to something um contrary yeah if you're in a city like berlin where it's kind of a melange of of stuff even this building i've got i've got clown trainers and blind piano tuners and opera singers and and so on but despite the kind of richness of personality there's nothing that sparks me to want to write about it or to respond to it in some way. It's not, it's not itching on me. It's not scraping on me. It's not causing me the discomfort that presses me to react. Yeah. And therefore, I do nothing. People often say to me, you know, it's so interesting. Why don't you? I've actually stopped writing completely since I've been here. When I'm in America, uh, especially traveling around it, uh, even the UK, funnily enough, not in Australia, and for reasons similar to here, you know, life is just so sort of beige and comfortable in Australia that it's, it's it, again, I don't find anything to react to. But when I'm in America, I'm often angry, appalled, uh, <laughs> or I'm excited. The landscape uh, itself is constantly changing. You mm-hmm. drive over an, a state border and you're in some other place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like they arrange the country that way. As soon as the landscape changed, let's call it New Mexico. Yeah. You know, something. Um, and I think that that, that I, I, I miss. I miss that abrasion. Um, I, I feel like as, as, as desperate as things are currently in America and as repulsive as the leadership of the country is, uh, I feel I want to get back and experience it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, illogically, I don't, I don't feel any such desire to go and spend time in Hungary or, or Poland. But I, I suspect that because I, I really do feel like I understand America and Americans. I'm married to one. My kids are American. I, I feel there's an investment of me there, which I don't have in Europe. But certainly there's plenty to react to, to, to press up against, to, to, presses you to do something about it yeah it's um yeah it's interesting there was uh about five years ago or so that it was really um popular to write these uh personal essays about moving to berlin and then not getting anything done ever again they had one in the new yorker they had one in the new york times it was just like every publication had this personal essay about uh, I was in a band, I moved to Berlin, and then I partied so much that I lost three years of my life or whatever, um, which was really not my experience. It was funny. Like, I honestly feel like Berlin turned me into a writer, that I wasn't a writer until I moved here. And part of that was I just felt out of my depth as soon as I got here because everything in the 20th century happened in Berlin. And I'm just like a naive American who never had to deal with the 20th century. Um, We were very cushioned from it. Um, And it really was this feeling of like, oh, shit, I have to I have to live up to the city um, and get my shit together. Um, And I feel like that's what turned me into a writer. And if I'd stayed in America, I don't think that I would have been. Really, I yeah. Uh, 
and yet so many so many of the great american writers came out of your neck of the woods in many ways or oh yeah 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 but they all came to europe right i mean uh, of the 20th century great american writers a lot of them are weirdly midwestern but they all lived in europe <laughs> yeah but that may have been their abrasion point you know yeah of course yeah. that that you 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 live in the middle of america and there is certainly a routine to that life that is Yes. Uh, it doesn't change. Uh, similarly, in Australia, uh, I think there's a kind of routine to Australian life, uh, very much so, because I go back there every sort of 10 years, and there's exactly the same people on television, which I, I find, <laughs> and they haven't aged, which yeah. I also can't figure out. <laughs> so I think the distance is also some kind of weird time warp. But I, I don't know. Uh, it's also true that most of the American writers went back and, and stayed even at the end of his life. Someone like Gore Vidal ended up leaving Italy, which had been very much his home. Mm -hmm. um, I also suspect it's something that writers do. My father did it. He spent his entire life, working life, as a writer in Europe, and suddenly went back to Australia. Mm -hmm. And I spent most of the last years of his life looking at him and saying, "Why?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It yeah. didn't seem particularly happier, I, but I think that there was, I don't know, this this desire to reconnect with roots and so on. But then again, that for me is a bit of a, a blank spot. The only reason I understand it at all is because I've got a, a wife who is very rooted to, to you know, Oklahoma and, and that part of America and uh, is, is also partly na Native American. And so she feels it in a really palpable way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the I, Midwest is a strong tie. Yeah, and her family has been there or in that general area uh, for a couple of hundred years. Mm -hmm. um, I have nothing like that, uh, and I haven't been raised like that, but even in my history, I mean, my family's sailed out from places like Newfoundland and, and you know, the south of England and Ireland and, you know, ended up in Australia and then, traveled thousands of miles inside the place trying to find a place to settle. So I think that rootlessness is, as I say, almost like belonging to a tribe of Roma or, or traveling Irishmen, you know. It, 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 so the sense of belonging to me is always theoretical. Yeah. I mean, so I think this is something that I struggle with in my life, of, of feeling like there is a specific place and not being able to find it. Yeah. Have you gotten rid of that yet? Is it possible to, to to rid yourself of the belief that there's one place that's going to <laughs> solve everything for you? Funnily enough, I just finished writing this morning an interview I, I, I did with uh, Fernando Zricotti of um, Minor Literatures in, in London, who's an Argentinian who's lived in London and has a sort of similar sense of not sure where his home is. But there yeah. was this quote that I've, I've always uh, clung to from – Colin Thubrin, who who said, uh, there are some people who are born in the wrong place and then spend the rest of their lives looking for the right one. And I, I'm afraid I'm one of those, and I'm afraid I, I may have turned some of my children into this. Uh, but as I say, my my wife, for instance, is resolutely not that. Yeah. Um, and indeed, has actually deliberately set out 
to teach me what home is or even what family is. I had no clue about that for a long time. And she, you know, she's taught me and I, I now understand it. But once upon a time, if someone said to me, I feel homesick, I actually didn't know what they were talking about. And I'm not being very glib or, or insensitive about it. I literally sat there trying to imagine what that would feel like and realized I had no home to be sick for. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I don't think I've ever felt homesick in my life. Um, yeah. yeah. And the, the awful thing is that's actually a curse. I mean, as I get older, yeah. um, when I was younger, I thought, well, hey, you know, I, don't, I feel I've lived everywhere, and I sometimes feel that I really have. I've certainly lived in you know several continents and several cities, um, and made homes in all of them, and actually made homes in none of them. And I I didn't feel the lack until recently where as i suddenly felt that i was suddenly getting old and that i had a limited time left there was suddenly this desire of saying i'd like to be home without being able to define it so yeah. i've kind of made it where my wife feels home i will feel home there because i feel home with her mm -hmm. so okay that gave me a logic but do i have a sense of place belonging none at all yeah, I mean, coming from the Midwest, like, I don't have, people in my family are very nostalgic for just even the landscape, yeah. which I see as completely oppressive. Like, that that flat uh, descent into nothing, into just, no, and just more nowhere, more nowhere, like, it, to me, it feels like madness when I'm there and, and just can just see for miles of just nothingness. <laughs> well, well, also, you know, I, you and I have this sort of bond in some ways because, you know, Kansas and Oklahoma share a quite extensive border that is mainly made up of Mad Max country, you know, yes, where they've yeah, so despoiled the land, even in pre-Trump pre era, yeah. so despoiled it with chemicals, nuclear fallout, uh, waste from mining and oil and so on, that no one can actually live there. They've actually decamped everybody yeah. from these towns yeah. and they're utterly abandoned. Um, so, you know, this is at least a shared culture that you and I have, the apocalypse in practice. Yeah. 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 And the drought is gonna is gonna increase that that range, man. Um yeah, so um where else I mean you said you were sort of comparing Berlin now to sort of Rome in the sixties. Um, but where else have you lived that has felt like similar to what's going on here right now? I, I think Tokyo in 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 the nineties was interesting. Post crash, um, there was a lot of interesting things happening artistically. There was a lot of people arriving there. If you remember, you know, there was a moment where Tokyo was sort of like Prague or Berlin. Everyone was going there for a yeah, while, yeah. Um, and there was. Uh, this wonderful mix of people who are in practices like architecture and, and, and industrial design who are interacting with the artistic community. And there wasn't the same sort of pretense of like, I'm a graphic designer, but really I'm an artist. Right. No, they were, they were very much in their disciplines, but it was all sort of feeding off each other. Uh, there was interesting stuff happening in music and there was, there was, even interesting stuff happening in 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 the visual arts uh, and and literature um 
people like Banana Yoshimoto. You had yeah, uh, yeah. Hiramix in photography who you do these girls who were just taking pictures and then blowing them up on 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 Xerox machines in in photoshops and it had no idea of real this is you know pre uh, pre digital mm-hmm. so there there was this kind of vibrancy of stuff happening and fashion and and books and and, and the book publishing industry was incredibly interesting some of the stuff they were doing i was always coming back with piles of japanese photo books and 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 early precursors of flash fiction mm-hmm. um there's this whole abbreviated culture which flowed from a, a, an earlier japanese approach of compact culture uh so it somehow spawned something through several decades that became interesting in the 90s so that that was a place that i found really interesting um as I say, Prague had a literary scene. I missed it, but you know, it's still looked at somewhat nostalgically. And people yeah. like Tom McCarthy have made some really nice work out of it. Um, I don't think it's as it's as, as exciting as the people who espouse it say it is. But yeah. you know, there are yeah. a few. I, I, the funny thing is, in Berlin, it's very hard to point to anything that's come out of it that's a, a really exciting book. At least in Prague, produced some really interesting books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, it's funny, you know, even when I moved here uh, eight years ago, nine years ago now, um, you know, people were, of course, talking about Berlin is over and we have to find the next Berlin. And there was always this endless conversation about what the next Berlin is. And no, one, I don't know if anyone's found it like, it, you know, and, it, and it's always unclear of what they thought the Berlin now or the nostalgic Berlin even was. Um, so there's always a sense of like, well, Istanbul or Shanghai were the two that I kept <laughs> yeah. hearing. And like, you know, Istanbul is no. <laughs> Athens Athens is the new Berlin, I've heard. Is it? Yes, I apparently love so. Athens. Yeah, my um, son does too. Me, I, uh, perhaps because of my main interactions with it was as a sailor. So uh, no, uh, but my son adores it. I love so. Athens. Um, I was thinking if I don't move back to Berlin, I might move to Athens because I have uh, really close friendships there with like fashion designers and and uh, poets and that sort of stuff. So yeah, well, it's it's definitely got it going for it, and of course, the economy is utterly crushed. Yeah. Uh, so it has a lot of the advantages that Berlin used to have. Um, also, there's a sort of newness of this, for, I think, for Athens itself. Um, and I have to, I have to say, I really admired their negative reaction to Documenta going there. And I thought any city that can, uh, express how pissed off they are with a bunch of Germans coming to tell them all about, uh, culture. Yeah. I, I thought, well, this is, this may actually be the provocation that it needs to, to establish itself differently. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.